Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us, and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy today to be chatting with my good friend Gary Hudson. We came together, I guess it was a few months ago, you sent me a message and then you sent me your book, which is called Surrender to Reason, New Testament Studies that Disputed Faith. So thanks for sending me the book and I really enjoyed reading it. So welcome to MindShift Podcast. Thank you. I do enjoy the MindShift Podcast. I was uh, drawn to it by a lot of your uh, discussions and uh, I must say that they, they were of help to me and helped me to think through a lot of issues and coming out of evangelicalism. Yeah, that's true. There's a there's a huge sense that we're forming this community outside the church, which is hugely ironic. I think that both you and I were pastors for many years, and here we are, we're forming the community, which is one thing that, you know, the church has that they say, well, if you want to join our church, you'll, be, you'll become part of our community, become part of our family. You know, and that's a big tagline, isn't it, for many churches? Yes, exactly. Um, you, of course, the churches will differ in the exclusiveness that they put on their members, members and membership. Mm. But by and large, the evangelical community is an exclusive community in itself, and uh, you're either you're either saved and in it, or you're not. And if you're you're either saved or lost. That's the way the whole world's divided up, according to them. Yeah, absolutely. Their interpretation of the Bible, and uh, I guess we're going to talk about that too. Oh yeah, I read your book with great interest. In fact, I brought it to work, and a friend of mine said, "What are you reading?" Because if you look at the front of it, it, you could almost think it's like a pro-Christian book. You know, it's got a picture of a a stained glass window with a cross in it, surrender to reason, and it sounds like you're advocating that you should believe the Christian faith. You know, and a friend of mine, he knows I'm an ex-evangelical at work. He said, "Wait a minute, should I be getting worried about?" about you now because that looks like a pro-christian book (laughs) well all you have to do is look at the at the byline new testament studies that disputed faith yes so that's really it right there that tells you everything so yes so we're going to get into your book which a lot of it i would say a majority of it you go through kind of a running 
ironically, a verse-by-verse commentary of the book of Romans, which we do want to get into, but I'm interested to hear what your backstory is, because we mentioned you and I are both ex-pastors. What's your story? Were you raised in the faith? Did you go straight into ministry out of sort of high school, college age? What's your story? I wasn't raised as a Christian, except that when I was about 10 years old, you know, as a child, my sister and I were taken into the Episcopal Church through my dad's interest to get us baptized, and that was that was something that that he was interested in at the time. That was back in 1965, and uh, I was baptized and received communion in the Episcopal Church, and 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 went through the catechism and everything as a child. And that was about it. I never attended church again after that. It wasn't until I was about 18 years old I had been listening to a Billy Graham crusade on television where he was saying Christ is the answer, Christ is the answer. And uh, I reached a pretty low point in my life as a teenager, a high school dropout. Somebody was working odd jobs, uh, living from here to there wh- where anybody would you know, rent me a room to, to live in. So I pretty much uh, uh, had an empty life and an aimless life until then. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. You know, I was an 18-year-old, very impressionable. And I knew that my next-door neighbors went to church. So I went next door and uh, asked them if I could uh, sit down and talk to them about Jesus. So the next thing I know, we're holding hands around the room in a circle, and uh, they are leading me in a prayer to accept Jesus as my Savior. And, oh, it just all of a sudden, it just felt really wonderful. Uh, I felt like a huge burden was lifted off of my shoulders. Now, looking back on the experience, I understand the uh, power of suggestion uh, with conversion. And of course, this is something that I had experienced, which is experienced in non-Christian religions alike. Oh, yeah. People claim to have these experiences and these feelings. But I did clean up my life. Uh, By that, I mean, I quit smoking, I quit drinking, I started going to church. I uh, did every, about everything I was asked to do in the church. I was a pretty good church member, and I taught Sunday school. And as I grew in the faith, it was suggested I go to Bible college. So I, I went to Bible college, and uh, I got my bachelor's degree, and I got my master's degree, and uh, studied uh, New Testament theology, studied uh, Old Testament archaeology, I studied all the books of the Bible, every first of the King James Version. In fact, the first school that I attended for my bachelor's degree required me to study every single verse of the King James Version. And uh, it was a school that was what we call independent fundamental Baptist, which oh, means yeah. King James only. Yeah, uh, you were not a Yeah, as later on as an evangelical, though, I, I gave up the uh, belief that the King James Version is the one true only Word of God translation, and I wrote about that. And that was early on that I left that one. But I continued to preach. And uh, in my last church that, that I pastored, I was ordained uh, in 1983. I was active as a, as an evangelist. I, uh, I preached revivals. I tried to start a church at one point in, in the early, right after I got out of seminary, and that didn't go too well. But uh, then later I pastored a church in Georgia, and then I was in and out of the pulpit over the years filling in for preachers, teaching Sunday schools, a choir director. I was involved in Christian music. But I took a church in uh, 2004 that um, went very well. That that pastor went very well. And for the first time, I was able to go completely full-time uh-huh. and uh, settle down into my study. 
And this church gave me the luxury of 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 studying for my sermons because I I before was always just working and trying to study and try. In fact, I worked my way through seminary. So this was the first time I was actually in a real full time position. You know, about the third year I was there uh, studying for a sermon. One day I came across a passage in the Bible, and uh, it was Matthew twenty three thirty five where Jesus is pronouncing a judgment on the nation of Israel. And he says that upon you may come all the righteous blood that is shed from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. And uh, as I ran cross-references on that verse and I looked it up, I found that the Zechariah who was slain in the temple was not the son of Berechias. Oh. That was Zechariah. There was two Zacharias there. The Zechariah, the son of Berechias, was later slain, was uh, earlier, I'm sorry. Son of um, Berechiah was a later prophet. Right, so and Jesus got it wrong or what? <laughs> he was involved in the rebuilding of the temple. Right. So um, I searched for answers on this, that this this was the wrong Zechariah. It was the... Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, who mm. was slain in the temple, not Zechariah, the son of Berechias. So uh, uh, you look at the Old Testament book of Zechariah, it begins by saying Zechariah, the son of Berechias. Mm-hmm. So Matthew writer, whoever he was, looked like he had this, this in view, this son of Berechias. Did he know that that was the, actually the son of Jehoiada years late, earlier? that was slain in the first temple. The first Zechariah was actually slain in the temple, was slain in that first temple that was destroyed. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, led in the reconstruction of the temple. So why would the Jews turn around and and kill their own prophet who had just led them along with Haggai and Nehemiah and Ezra and all the good guys to rebuild the temple? There's nothing about that Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, being slain. And I knew that from the Old Testament. So as I was looking at this, I said, you know, there's a real problem here. And I believe that the Bible is infallible. I believe it's absolutely inerrant. We were taught that if you can find one mistake in the Bible that is not just a translation error, but verifiably was part of the original text, and that that is an actual mistake, then uh, you can't trust any of it, or you can question all of it, kind of thing. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, What was your views on the Bible? Because Sounds like you're coming out of the IFB fundamentalist background. You're a diehard King James only at at, at the beginning anyway. You kind of jettisoned yeah. that bit. But yeah, it, that's the problem with inerrancy, isn't it? It, it kind of can paint you into a corner philosophically, theologically, biblically. If you do find a mistake or a, an apparent contradiction, let's say, because I remember that's how they always said it when we were in seminary. There's no actual contradictions. They're only apparent. We're going to find an answer. You know, but if you can't find an answer, you've got a serious problem. And it sounds like you found a, a serious problem in this whole system. I was a Christian apologist right? Uh, in a strict sense. I had answers for a lot of the, what I would call, legend contradictions in the Bible. This is one I couldn't have an answer for. I couldn't find an answer for. And I picked up Gleason Archer's book on Bible difficulties. And I thought, wow, if there's any scholar, yeah. heavyweight going to have it. scholar who can answer this, it's him. When I looked up his explanation, it's basically an explanation that just says, well, we'll just have to assume that Jesus was telling the truth. I mean, that's, uh, 
and that, that the Barakiah uh, there was, in fact, the one that was here. Let me, um, I'll tell you what, let me just quote here. I've got the quote right here from Gleason Archer and his book, The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. He says this, quote, the obvious solution, now this is his obvious solution. Yes, it's so obvious. Start all, yeah, start all over again and assume that Matthew 23, 35 correctly reports the words of Jesus and that he, Jesus, knew what he was talking about. If so, then we discover that the Zechariah he was referring to was indeed the son of Berechiah, not Jehoiada, and that he was indeed the last of the Old Testament martyrs mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures. Of course, the Hebrew Scriptures don't mention Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, as a martyr whatsoever. Continuing, mm -hmm. in other words, Christ is recalling his to his audience the circumstances of the death of the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. So the obvious answer, according to him, is to assume that Matthew 23, 35 is the truth. So how is assuming a problem text to be true an obvious solution to a problem text? Mm, that is a problem. <laughs> how does that work? That, that's what he's Circular saying. logic. It's true because it's in the Bible and, and it's quoting Jesus. That's essentially what Gleason Archer, the great scholar and the great Christian apologist, says. Mm. I looked at this, I said, this isn't an explanation at all. I wrote some friends in the ministry I didn't hear back from. I didn't get a satisfactory answer on this. So uh, I concluded that this is this is probably just the tip of the iceberg of the problems in the Bible. Uh -huh. I decided to go from there to other things I had thought deeply about. One of them was, one of the things was the book of Romans, yeah. which I had taught for years, studied very intently. I had read all the great commentaries on Romans, Ahaj and Barnhouse and Luther and all, and I taught it in Sunday school. I taught it from the pulpit many, many times preached on it. Romans was the complete full treatise of That's the whole package there, isn't it? Yeah, by the Apostle Paul. So I thought, well, this is his, this is regarded by Luther and everyone as the great the Magna Carta of the Reformation, yeah. practically. It's the so, summit of Paul's theology. Well, there was another one I remember from your book, you talked about another problem text. Before we get into Romans, you said that it was Matthew 24, I think it was, 24, 25, where Jesus basically predicts his own return, I think, you know, and he says, well, there are some of you standing here who will see the Son of Man coming in his glory. You know, that's another problem text, isn't it, where you say, wait a minute, Jesus isn't coming back. He didn't come back according to his own words there. So you've got another problem passage in that one, yeah. don't you? Yes. Well, the first chapter in my book is called Good News, Jesus is Not Coming Back. Yeah. And Jesus said, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming. Evangelicals try to deal with that. Well, he was transfigured after that. So that was a picture yes. of the coming of Christ. And so they have all these explanations. Yeah, they saw him going to heaven. Yeah. But if you get into the rest of the New Testament, what you find out is, is that in the epistle of Peter, in a lot of the epistles of Paul, and certainly in the book of Revelation, the second advent of Jesus is predicted as an immediate thing. It is something that is to happen soon. It is to happen now. Oh, yeah. It is to happen in that generation. So people say, well, you know, no man knows the day or the hour when mm -hmm. he's coming back. And it could be another 2,000 years. Who knows? Well, I'm sorry, but the New Testament, while it did not predict the day or the hour, it certainly did predict the generation. Yeah. And it was the generation of the first century church 
who was to witness the second coming of Jesus. They were told, the early Christians were told by Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.7, that we are waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many passages we see this. Uh, one of the most noteworthy is, is Hebrews 9.26. I have a whole chapter on the book of Hebrews in my book. I believe that the book of Hebrews was, was written by a what I call a Paulist or someone mm-hmm was probably trying to give the impression that Paul was writing it without actually putting his name on it so it would have wider circulation, probably among the Jerusalem church. Mm-hmm. It is patterned very closely after the book of Romans, has a large doctrinal body, and then there is a practical application of the doctrinal material in it. It treats the allegoration of the Old Testament scriptures the same way the book of Romans does. So this was somebody definitely well-schooled in that. And in Hebrews 10, he says, for just a little while, and he that uh, will come, he said, he is who is to come will come. Let me find exactly the way that is worded here. Uh, for just a little while, and the word that is used is just a little while, is mekron hasan hasan in Greek, and is literally translated in a very little while. Hebrews 10, 37, for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come. It will not tarry. Now, it's written in the first century. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to say in a little while, if I if I told you I was going to the store and I'll be back in a little while. Yeah. You're not I'll saying 2,000 years. 2,000 years. <laughs> 20 this minutes. From, I go into all of these passages in my book uh, in the New Testament that predict the immediate return of Christ. And once I saw that the immediate return of Christ had failed, that led me to question all the other things that that promised return is interwoven with, mm-hmm. such as the resurrection. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you, shall so come in like manner. Well, I'm not so sure now that he was even taken up. Now that I find out that this promise of his coming has failed, it's, it's failed for 2,000 years. But certainly the biblical writers, when they said things like a little while, and that's Macron, Hassan, Hassan, Hebrews 10:37, these Greek words are used to give, this is according to the analytical Greek lexicon, used to give an intensity to other qualifying words a very little while, a very short time. Yeah, there's no so ambiguity about it, really. That is very clear, clearly. Yeah, he's a, coming right back. Down. And that's in the book of Hebrews. But Paul says, you're waiting for, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ shall return from heaven with his mighty angels. And then the book of Revelation, to understand the book of Revelation, all you got to do is look at the last verse, mm-hmm. uh, the last few verses where he says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming. Qu-. What does quickly mean? It doesn't mean that he's coming like really fast. It means that he's coming soon. Yeah. I'm coming soon. That's time frame. Yeah. I remember that here in that discussion. I remember talking in seminary when we were going through New Testament survey and the professor said, there's a couple of things when you come to places like Matthew 24 the apostles who stood and saw him ascending into heaven in, in the book of Acts, first couple chapters of Acts, that was the promise. Like you said, that was it. He, that he was coming, not back to earth, but they saw him in his glory, going ascending into heaven. And then I remember him saying it was the, the early Christians that heeded his warnings to you know not flee back to the city when you saw the end was coming. It was a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that's what it was all about. So there's always an explanation, isn't there, for why it didn't mean what it actually seems to plainly mean. But 
Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet, which I yeah. believe he was. Okay. As Bart Ehrman accurately points out, mm-hmm. Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet is set in that writing. That writing is after the temple was destroyed. It's believed by most scholars that Matthew was written after the destruction of the temple. And that writing in 2020 hindsight about and then making it look like Jesus predicted these things would happen. Mm-hmm. Jesus's words, though, were still prophetic in that they were waiting for his coming right around the destruction of the temple. It was going to be shortly after that he's going to mm-hmm. come and he's going to put down all the enemies of Israel and set up his kingdom on this earth. In 1 Peter 4, 7, we're told the end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is That's pretty, at yeah. hand. It's pretty significant. Everything, not just a few things. The end, of, right. the end of the world, it sounds like to me, isn't it? The end of everything. And like you say, Christ is going to come set up his kingdom very shortly. Yeah, the New Testament makes it very clear that the second advent of Jesus was to occur in the first century. It was to occur to the early church. Yeah, and it and did not happen. Right. It did not happen. Time itself is proof that the Bible's an error on that claim. Yeah, and that's a huge claim. Of that prophecy. That is a yeah. huge claim, and it's claimed over and over and over again in the right. New Testament. And that starts to, the, the edifice starts to chip away. Like you say, the whole house of cards starts to fall down. And I remember going through similar things when I was questioning my faith, as, as you know, deconstructing and all that, and you start to think, wait a minute, especially as an inerrantist, I think that's a big one, you know, that if it's all true, it's all got to be true, you know, and like I say, one tiny crack appears, you can't, you can put your finger in the dike here and there, but eventually the floodwaters are going to break through and you've got really nothing left. Well, one of the great explanations often given is to cite Second uh, Peter. Uh, Peter's second epistle, where he says, one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And Christians say, ah, you see there? there yeah, is. he said it was just going to be very soon, but this was God talking. Well, this is God talking to us in language we are supposed to interpret according to normal rules of language. I mean, when he says, mm-hmm. I'm coming back very soon, it's immediate, it's at hand, all right? There's no fooling around with that. Is God trying to deceive us? I mean... What is Second Peter really all about? I believe that Second Peter was written, well, most scholars believe it's much later. In fact, some of the reformers were discussing about rejecting it as even canonical. I believe that was John Calvin. I believe this epistle was made to order. When the uh, first coming was, that was predicted didn't happen, and that this pseudonymous author, Pete, uh, who called himself Peter, who wrote Second Peter, he uses a thousand years as a as a metaphor it's 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 to refer to a long period of time like there's thousands ten like the lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints all right does it mean that he's only coming with ten thousand saints no it what they're talking about is an unlimited number mm-hmm. so he's he's saying that one day is with the lord's a thousand years so he uses this metaphorical extension of time to extend the confidence of those believers about the end of all things prophesied in the first epistle. Mm -hmm. So here's your explanation, uh, guys, why the Lord didn't come back, like I said in my first epistle. It's because a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. Well, little did he know when he wrote that, that his book was going to be included in the canon with all (laughs) the other 46 books who are all claiming very loudly that he's coming back immediately. So very soon. Yeah. 
So you've got these major problems. Now let's look into Paul because we've got a guy who, as you were saying before we hit record, without Paul, you really wouldn't have the Christian church as it is as it existed over the last couple of millennia. He, here's a guy who wrote his epistles before the Gospels were written. And I think even for a lot of evangelicals, I probably went to Bible college, I, I just kind of assumed that the Gospels were written first, and then Paul wrote his, his epistles to all these churches that were existing around the Mediterranean world. But I, of course, found out that Paul wrote most of his epistles well before the Gospels were written, and it was sort of his theology that the church picked up, and that's what's become the basic theology of even most churches today, I would say. No doubt about it. Uh, there are plenty of clues in Paul's writings that uh, he had no knowledge of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, most scholars believe that Mark was the first Gospel written, and I think it was Griesbach who initially proved that mm-hmm. uh, in the 19th century, showing how that the other Gospels borrowed from Mark, right, and that they di- even disagreed over how much editing needed to be done of Mark. Matthew and Luke definitely disagreed over that. But in Paul's writings, Paul says, he gives one of, the sh- one of the clearest indications to me is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that Jesus uh, uh, was, uh, he rose from the dead according to the scriptures and that he was seen of the apostles. He said he was seen of, of Peter, then he was seen, in, and he says, then he was seen of the 12. And then he says, last of all, he was seen of me. So he mm-hmm. distinguishes himself from the 12. And he says, Jesus was seen of the 12 after his resurrection. Well, that's not according to Matthew. That's Mm -hmm. not according to Luke. That's not according to John. According to them, Judas went out and hanged himself. And uh, so he wasn't. And then Matthias was was much later in the book of Acts. And so Mm -hmm. at least 40 days after the after the resurrection. So we know that when it says then he appeared to the 12, appearing to the 12 apostles as a group is what Paul believed. He didn't know anything about Judas killing himself and all these stories that Mm -hmm. were later developed as the Jesus narrative was enhanced. Is that in the Gospels? The best bare-bones account of the life of Jesus you're going to find is Mark. And he doesn't even mention the virgin birth. Neither does the Apostle Paul. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 that uh, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. Now, he references uh, what he believes is a pre-existing Christ, but there's nothing about the virgin birth. In Paul's writings, that would have been one of the biggest, juiciest things to throw yeah. out to the Jews. I mean, here's proof that he's your Messiah. He was virgin born. And yeah. Paul never mentions that. He never mentions that any in any of his sermons either that are allegedly recorded in the book of Acts. Yeah, I remember teaching a class on Pauline theology and I was struggling to find the the answer to that question. How much how much about Jesus did Paul actually know? And I remember the classic evangelical answer is that, well, he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. You know, when he had this miraculous conversion in the early chapters of Acts, he was persecuting the church. Then he got knocked off his horse, blinded, and, and you know, met Jesus that way. Everything else then came via revelation. He says he went in the desert for years. And, you know, it seems like a strange story on the face of it, doesn't it? He didn't actually sit at Jesus's feet, as it were, like the other disciples did, learning from the master in that sense. He heard all this stuff from Revelation. So he's got this sort of transcendent method of receiving all this wisdom and knowledge from God, allegedly. Well, let's take Paul at his word here in his own writings, all right? In his own writings, he doesn't 
mention at all a Damascus Road experience. That was something written later. Exactly. In a, in a narrative. Yeah. In a narrative. All right. You won't find any reference to that. So what does Paul say about his credentials, about his background? Well, I like to go into Paul himself, not what people wrote about him, but what he actually said. And what he said was this, if you get in Galatians and everybody, most almost all scholars are in agreement that Galatians was written by Paul. In the book of Galatians, chapter 1, we read, but when it pleased God, this is Paul, Galatians 1.15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Now, he's just mentioned he's got a background in the Jews' religion about many of his equals. Mm-hmm. He was Pharisee of the Pharisees. Yeah, Benjamin and all that. Yeah. the church of God. All right, so he says, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the, na- uh, the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now he says that the things that were revealed to him, he says it very clearly here in verse 12 about the gospel. Brethren, I certify, verse 11, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. But by the revelation of Jesus Christ, he believed that this was revealed to him by Jesus himself, unlike it's been revealed even to the apostles who knew Jesus Christ face to face. Mm. So he's taking this as a superior revelation, even to the eyewitness accounts of Jesus in the Gospels. He's saying what I have is something that has not been made known as it is now being revealed. In mm-hmm. fact, he concludes the book of Romans that way. He says, now unto him, let's see, chapter 16 of Romans, the end of chapter 16, here it is, 25. Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, okay, which was kept secret since the world began. But now, now this is very key here. Listen to this. Now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of everlasting God, made known to all nations. That's the key right there. He's not saying that it wasn't in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. He says it was in the Old Testament, but it's Christ in me now revealing Jesus in the Old Testament interpreting the Old Testament, saying that the seed of Abraham wasn't a physical seed God was talking about. He was talking about a spiritual seed of believers. Mm. In my book, I I go into all these passages in Romans and actually show that he's misusing the Old Testament in a number of places, which really violated the laws of rules of hermeneutics that you and I were taught in seminary. Oh, yeah. I can remember that. I remember one time in, in seminary, I think it was, one of our professors said, now, for those of us you know, studying the Bible, we cannot use the same hermeneutic that the writers of the New Testament used. <laughs> and I thought to myself, uh-huh. wait a minute, wait a minute, what now? So they had a special hermeneutic. So guys like Paul, he was able to do things. He could play fast and loose with the text, but he said, you today are not allowed to do what they did. And I thought, wait a minute, shouldn't the rules of hermeneutics be the same? If we're interpreting the Bible, but apparently not, according to this professor, we can't do the same things they did. Well, here's the problem with that. Yes, it does say that the revelation of Jesus Christ 
uh, was given to the his gospel was given to Paul. Paul says it was given to me. Yes, it was it was not given to him by man. He says, but it was given to me by revelation. Okay, within him, it, he says Christ speaking in me, in Amoy, which means inside of me. You seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. He's talking about location-wise. Jesus is talking out of me. You see, it what Paul can say. Well, he could say. Well, it wasn't given me by man. It was given me by Jesus Christ. But that doesn't change the fact that Paul is the man that we all learn it from. That's we all true. learned it from man. We all learned it from one man. And mm-hmm. we got this one man's word saying, I got it from Jesus. It's kind of like following Joseph Smith. Yeah, that's you true. Say, well, how can he be so zealous and so so effective? Well, just look at the Mormon church. It's a lot more successful and unified than the Christian church is today. Mm-hmm. At one man's it's teaching. Following the revelations of a peepstone gaze. It's true. I'm proud to be an hey guys, it's the Left of the Valley 2.0 crew. My name is Kevin. And hey, uh, why are we calling that anyway? I kind of like the name. Yeah, we tell a lot of dick jokes. I mean, that in, in that sense, I lean left too. Uh, guys, uh, the people need to know that we're informative. Tons of useless info. Hey, my segment is very kind of informative. What about the other segments? Uh, better we don't mention those. Anyway, we also feature great guest interviews. Celebrities? Famous people? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got a better chance of interviewing Bigfoot. Well, Kevin is hairy enough. Uh, that will do. Okay, never mind. Just come to listen to LETV Radio, radio for atheists, skeptics, and humanists. I mean, I like the show. Not perfect, but it's pretty uh, entertaining. Okay, okay, I had enough. I'm out of here. Now who's going to be the Sasquatch? What about Troy? Hey! I mean, I could have been the Sasquatch, too, but, you know. <laughs> Find the Left at the Valley 2.0 crew wherever podcasts are played, whether it's Apple, Spreaker, Stitcher, YouTube, or more. You may have noticed, if it's not been clear by now, that we are doing ad swaps. This is something that my friends Brian and Troy started over at the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast. We've been chatting on Instagram, adding more and more podcasts in. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the Cult Vault, or the Left at the Valley podcast. I've been on the LATV a couple times before, and Casey and I are working on doing some crossover stuff in maybe the month of June or July. So really cool just to be able to promote some other shows, and hopefully we'll drive some listeners over to these other platforms. Anyway, I just want to let you know what's coming up here in the next few episodes of Mindship Podcast. I am nearly finished with that long, massively long episode on Doug Wilson and Stephen Wilkins's book, Southern Slavery As It Was. It's going to be another long, probably two-plus-hour episode. I'm going into real deep-dive detail here. That's going to be coming up very soon, as soon as I get that finished out. But before that, I've got an episode coming out with my good friend, Dr. Terry Daniel. We met up the other day. She's got her Death, Grief, and Belief conference coming up again in July. So we're going to be talking about that. We got into a whole bunch of other stuff around the subject of death, grief, and belief. So that's a really good conversation coming up with Dr. Terry Daniel really soon here. Then I've got an interview scheduled in the month of June with Dawn McCarty. She's a survivor coming out of a very controlling fundamentalist religion, a Christian background, kind of like me. So I'm really interested to talk to Dawn and hear what she has to say. And then we've got some other really cool stuff coming up I will keep you appraised of as the weeks come ahead. We've had, just as this episode drops now, our last Mindship Zoom call for the month of May, we had Nate Manderson come on on the 21st, which is only available for Patreon supporters of the show. However, 
if you want to watch that call, I always record those and they are posted later to Patreon. So in fact, the last two or three Mindshift Zoom calls, you can still watch on Patreon, becoming a member of the Patreon community, supporting the show. The links to that, as always, are in the show notes. And this is just one of the benefits you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. Another thing is you get access to the episodes. They drop a few days earlier before they hit the general public. So just a good little benefit to being a supporter of the show. And in fact, speaking of Mindship Zoom calls, I've in talks with Benny Kosha. She was just on the show talking about her experiences coming out of the Sam Fife Move of God cult. So I'm working on getting her as our guest in the month of September after we take our break. In fact, I'd asked her on the show to come back in June, but then I realized, oh, wait, we're taking the summer off. So I'm working on getting her back in September. Anyway, let's get back into the second half of this chat with Gary Hudson, another ex-pastor. This time now in the second half, we're going to dive into the book of Romans and get into Gary's story after he left the pastorate. How's he recovered? What's he doing in the meantime? So let's get on into this chat, Surrender to Reason with Gary Hudson. I'm interested to look at a couple of specific passages here. You talk about this a lot in your book. You go through the book of Romans, kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. One of the things that struck me was your treatise on Romans chapter 1, because Paul talks about, you know, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the uh, the wickedness of humanity. We are apparently suppressing what we know to be the truth. And then he goes into this kind of a rant, you know, that we are exchanging the truth about God for our for this lie, and God has turned us over to sexual immorality and all these other things. You know, that seemed like a problematic way to start his book. In chapter one, he's going to deal with the condemnation of the Gentile nations by God. Mm-hmm. They're all under God's wrath. Then he's going to deal in chapter two with why the Jews are also under God's wrath. The Gentile nations, all these pagan nations are under God's wrath because they worship idols and they turn to perversion and so forth. The Jews are under God's wrath because they haven't sought the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they rejected their Messiah. They rejected the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And Mm -hmm. this is, of course, rejecting Paul's revelation of Jesus Christ is what he really has ultimately in mind, as you'll see if you study it out. So God's remedy here in chapter 1 was to turn these Gentile nations and people that were giving themselves over to idol worship and perversion to give them up to even more vile affections, mm-hmm. to punish them by making them worse. Now, is this the way that, that you would think of punishing someone for doing something wrong by making them worse, by, making, by multiplying their bad behavior? Mm-hmm. So God gave them up to this and gave them up to that. So uh, my point in the book is this is this is unreasonable. Now, reason is very important to Paul, uh, evidently, because as far as the historical record about him in the book of Acts, which, of course, some of it is probably not true. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, he had a reputation back then of, quote, reasoning, reasoning with yeah, the Gentile, yeah. reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, reasoning out of the scriptures. So, OK, let's reason with Paul in the book of Romans. Let's see mm-hmm. if he uses reason, and he doesn't. He abandons reason over and over and over again. And I mean, takes in, in Romans 9 alone, I've got over 16 places where he took the Old Testament completely out of context. I've documented every one of these places. He changes words. He changes meaning. Now, this is something very important. I want to go ahead and mention this before I forget. Mm-hmm. The key to understanding Paul's revelatory method of interpretation 
is found in one verse in the book of Romans. He gives it to you. He flat out gives it to you. And here it is. As it is written, I've made thee a father of many nations, referring to Abraham. And then he adds this. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Oh, there it is. There you go. So Paul can take something from the Old Testament. This belief he has that God calls the things that are not as though they were. He can make something in the Old Testament be referring to something it never intended to be referring to by mm-hmm. special revelation. So Abraham's seed is the spiritual seed. He can go into Esau and, and, and Jacob and say, Esau I love and Jacob I've, I've uh, hated. Jacob yeah. I've loved and Esau I've hated. All right. Yeah. And say, well, that is a picture of believers and non-believers or believing Jews and non-believing Jews. He, he, he does this all through the book of Romans because God can call the things that are not as if they were. That is the hermeneutic of Paul right there stated in the text. Essentially, he can do whatever he wants with the text. He's got this divine sanction to basically violate the principles of what we would consider hermeneutics. Paul you know, that's, not, that's not too far from the grasp of, of evangelicalism. I think they could they can live with that. Oh yeah, God wrote the Old Testament, so if He wants to change it, if He wants to change the meaning anywhere, He can do that. Well, you might as well believe in any religion that sprang up since the Christian Church began. You might as well just say, "Well, look, uh, Islam could be true because, after mm-hmm. all, he, he, he claims to uh, Muhammad claims to have have succeeded where Christianity failed." And so forth and so on. God can call the things that are not as though they were. Right. You can take that and ju- he can justify every interpretation he made, all the allegory that he made of the Old Testament, all of the out-of-context quotations, say this is a picture of this, and this is actually the meaning of that, this is actually the meaning of that. And it's it's crazy when you read it. You realize he's making all of this up. He mm-hmm. feels good about saying this because he's got this one justifying principle that God calls the things that are not as though they were. Right. So that's his warrant. Well, you mentioned the other thing you talked about, his argument about the rejection of the Jews, or, you know, God's rejected the Jews because they rejected the Messiah. But he's got this whole thing where he talks about they're like the cultivated olive tree. We are the Gentile church. We've been grafted in. But don't worry, you know, there's going to come a time when all of Israel is going to repent and they're going to be allowed back in. Oh, yeah. You know, so he goes into all this argumentation. You know, what do you, what is your, take on all this stuff about how he's, you know, interpreting their rejection of the Messiah, does that strike you as, as perhaps in any way anti-Semitic? I mean, how would a Jew today read the book of Romans and go through that section? It would be highly offensive on certainly one level. And of course, Paul himself was Jewish. So where, where does he stand on that? Paul claims he has a big heart for the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So he says in Romans 10:1, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, what's funny about this is he just read, I uh, just said in chapter nine, which we've just read in chapter nine before mm-hmm. this, that who has resisted his will? Nobody can resist the will of God. This right. was God's purpose to blind the Jews. Right, he is so sovereign. Gentiles yeah. might believe, all right? This exactly. is what he says. Now, that I don't think anything could be more offensive to the Jews than to say something like that. Did you know that God has blinded you 
so that the Gentiles could be saved. And that uh, if you would just realize that and accept Jesus as your Savior, then uh, that you'd be saved too, and you'd be in the yeah. church, and and you'd be right with God. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. And yeah. so he pretty much he seems like he blames the Jews for rejecting Christ, but then again, he says this was all part of God's sovereign plan. So when you get to Romans eleven, he tries to explain it. He said, "Blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of times comes in." And then the blinders are going to be lifted off their eyes and they're going to see. You know why the Jews rejected Jesus? Paul never really tells us exactly the reason. But there, it, it's not because God's blinded them or any of that. No, it's because they had the Old Testament. They were the students of it. They were the mm-hmm. custodians of it. They knew their scriptures. The Gentiles did not know the scriptures like the Jews did. So the Jews weren't buying it. All this mm. revelation about Jesus being their Messiah and believing in his blood, and the Jews weren't buying it. They weren't buying it because they knew the Old Testament. And if you take Paul's writings and compare them with the Old Testament, I predict you won't buy it either. I mean, if yeah. you really study it out, I mean, the worst thing that a fundamentalist can do is study the Bible. And the worst <laughs> yeah. thing he can do, the worst what happened to you? Is <laughs> fundamentalism. If you want to mess up your fundamentalism, be a student of the Bible. I mean, and being honest, so, and don't look at other people's interpretation. Don't just read it for yourself. Look up the cross references and try to figure out what's really going on here. Mm. And I, yeah, it's indeed, the word of man. It is problematic. Man. I can remember that though, because I'm, you know, as an evangelical like you, I was in apologetics and I was in all that kind of stuff. And I remember witnessing to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses that would come to my door. And in my belief, I was interpreting that whole encounter the way Paul lays it out, because he says unbelievers, they're spiritually blind to the truth of the gospel. You know, and I'm sitting there praying, oh, God, please open their eyes, the eyes of their heart, and that they may see the truth and, you know, lift this veil of darkness from their minds and all the rest of it. So I'm as an evangelical, I'm buying into Pauline theology. I'm trying to witness to these you know, so-called cultists on the doorstep, and I'm thinking they're spiritually blind, and I'm thinking Jews are spiritually blind as well, because that's what Paul says in Romans, isn't it? Well, absolutely. These teachings continued on. Uh, like when you get to Ephesians, okay, some scholars believe that Ephesians was not written by Paul, you know, the real highly critical scholars. I believe it probably was written by Paul. That's just my own personal belief, but let's just say it wasn't. Let's say it was written by those at least it was written by those in the Pauline school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Students Very of his, as it were. Yeah. Uh, people who actually were given permission as apostles, if they were uh, p- apostles in the Pauline sense, and they went were straight down the line doctrinally with him, they certainly had the same permission to use the revelatory information to interpret the Old Testament. And here we have in Ephesians three. For this call, I, uh, cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto, listen to this, his holy apostles, plural, and prophets, plural, mm-hmm. by the Spirit. Well, it was re- it was Christ speaking in Paul. And all of you apostles, you know, you're going to have to just get on board because this is Jesus talking through me. And as educated as he was, as eloquent as he was, his ability to work, probably uh, work 
just as proficiently in Greek as he could in the in uh, Hebrew mm. uh, and, and and these other languages. No doubt in my mind, he was he was probably very hard to argue with. If you read his logic and the way he lays things out, he has a very convincing way of talking about it and then relating his own experiences. And then you look at the suffering that he went through, uh, suffering for it. Well, my God, the guy must be true. Because look at all the things he yeah. endured. How many times he was in prison and yeah, whipped and yeah, and everything else for the sake of the gospel. There are yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people in history that have sincerely believed that they were commissioned by God, telling the truth, and they were willing to suffer for it. Oh, I mean, and if not Jonestown, they yeah. all died for it. Yeah, they all the truth. Lee was a message from God. Yeah. So zealousy of a religion is not proof that it's true. That's absolutely right. Yeah. You could be sincerely misled for sure, but be a hundred percent sincere. Well, this is interesting. I, I don't want to go too much into it because I'm thinking now people are going to want to buy your book. They need to read the book. There's a lot more content in there. What happened to you after you left the ministry? Now getting away from the book a little bit. If people want to read more about it and get into the Pauline theology and your sort of disputation with Paul, but what happened to you after you left the ministry? Were you shunned? Were you excommunicated? Or did you just walk away from the whole thing? How did it all go down? Well, uh, I, I wasn't really shunned or anything. I was treated very nicely by Christians who wanted to remain friends with me. They, they, they agreed to disagree. But I had some who, of course, wrote me off as somebody who never was a believer in the oh, yeah. first place. That's a classic God. <laughs> what they say. Yeah, you never were truly a believer. And uh, if you had been, you would have continued. Well, you can say that if you want to, but that doesn't really discuss a single point of this book, does it? Mm -hmm. I mean, the things that I've brought up from the Bible, it's a way of excoriating, it's, it's slay the messenger, you know, yep. excoriate Gary. So there was some of that. I went to work immediately. Um, I was delivering food off of the back of a truck. I did that for an entire year after I left the church. I chose to do that rather than stay in the church, violate my conscience by mm. preaching something that I knew I didn't believe. I did not believe the doctrinal creed of my church any longer. And when I got out of the got out of the church, I I eventually I, I went to church a few times after that. I attended services in in uh, in the town there in Jacksonville, but uh, for essentially essentially I I was not a churchgoer anymore. I mean, I would go and listen to the music, hear what the latest sermon was, but that was about it. I was not active any longer. I felt like, well, you know, a lot of people have got questions. People want to know why you left the ministry. What was it that led to that? So I wrote the book and I published it in uh, 2018 initially. And then again, in 2019, made some corrections in it. So I I got this, this book out, Surrender to Reason, as basically a, a period to that part of my life. You understand, mm -hmm. I was like uh, like 60 years old or 61, 62 years old when I wrote this book. And so I uh, had a lot of, I mean, for nearly 40 years, people have known of me as a born-again evangelical Christian. And what happened to Gary? Why does he, why does he turn to unbelief? Why is he an atheist now? Or things like that. <laughs> Now, why is he an atheist? I don't understand. He's got an apostate now. <laughs> much Bible. Yeah. yeah, he knew so much Bible, and now he's an atheist. I just don't understand that. 
just read the book and you might understand it a little bit. Okay. That's your journey. That's why I published it. It's a period. I figured I owed an explanation, but reason is, is key here because, um, what I found about faith believing, which, which by the way, the whole idea of making faith such a great thing, like greater than even the righteousness of the law, greater than, like Paul says, this is even something better than doing the law, is what you believe is, he actually made what you believe is more important than what you do, mm-hmm. okay? Because believing you get the righteousness of God, but by obeying the law, yeah, you're not going to be made righteous, you know, there's not of works and so forth. I deal with all that in my book, but the point is that when it comes to reason, when it comes to what Christians have said, some of the most noted Christians, like William Jennings Bryan, for example. Here's one of his quotes. Quote, if the Bible had said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would believe it. Mm-hmm. Now, that's William Jennings Bryan. This is Martin Luther. Quote, reason is a whore, the greatest enemy that faith has. It never comes to the aid of spiritual things, but more frequently than not struggles against the divine word, treating with contempt all that emanates from God. Mm. Martin Luther. And this quote is from William Lane Craig, who is today one of the leading Christian apologists mm-hmm. at Talbot Seminary. He says this, quote, Should a conflict arise between the witness of the Holy Spirit to the fundamental truth of the Christian faith and beliefs based on argument and evidence, then it is the former which must take precedence over the latter, not vice versa. Yeah, so if I love that. Real evidence that contradicts the Bible. Guess what? Forget the real evidence. Just forget yeah. that. Forget about this evidence. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the way people lie about the election between Trump and Biden mm-hmm. in 2020. Well, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. It doesn't matter what evidence you show me that Biden won. I'm going to believe that Trump won, no yeah. matter what. I know it was a. I know it was a big, uh, a great big. Yeah. Uh, it was a con job. Yeah, it was rigged. Yeah. You can't believe the lying media. Yeah, that's what they say. Right. You just can't do it. So this is the way people have a blind <laughs> adherence to faith. And no wonder so many people of faith follow Trump. Yeah. Yeah. It's a blind messiah, isn't it? It's a cult of Trump. Exactly well, right. How have you dealt, this is my last question then, how have you dealt with, have you had any like religious trauma syndrome around your time as a minister? Because I know a lot of us Coming out of the ministry, I was burned out in ministry. I got burned quite badly in the last church I pastored in Portland. You know, do you feel any sense of guilt? You led people to the Lord. We we witnessed, we preached, we did all that. We taught the Bible. How have you dealt with all that coming out on the back end? Well, let me say this about that. You know as well as I do, after you learn that all of this is basically BS, uh. You reminisce on the fact that you have traumatized children from the pulpit by telling them that they will spend eternity in hell mm-hmm. and it, it, they will burn. I mean, I was a hellfire damnation preacher. In my last church I pastored, I put on the church marquee in big letters, here's the Sunday sermon. I would post the Sunday sermon every week. And this Sunday was going to be, one Sunday was going to be that I posted why I believe in a literal burning eternal hell. I'd preach that, okay? And wow. I traumatized people into conversions. 
Yeah. People came forward because they were afraid. Did I do damage? Yes. That mm. does damage. Absolutely. And anybody that does that is damaging. They're damaging people's thought processes. People, you're, you're damaging their ability to think cognitively and, and logically and analytically about truth. And they're accepting things based on emotion. And yeah, I, I have a lot of regrets about what I, how have I dealt with it by just speaking the truth, by being frank and open and honest about it and just saying, look, here I am. I could do no better than just to say I was wrong. And it was the Bible itself. It wasn't anybody that showed me things in the Bible. It was what I found in the Bible for myself that led me away from faith. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's what my book is about. My book is not what other people say. It's about what I found. Yeah. Your journey. That's yeah. right. It's an honest approach to it, isn't it? Saying, look, this is what I went through. You know, it's, it, it, and I found that I was actually coming to the conclusion, the same conclusions of a lot of critical scholars like Mark Ehrman. And I like James Tabor uh, a lot in his work on Paul, which is very enlightening. Uh, I recommend his books to everyone. I mean, they're, they're just fantastic. Jesus and Paul, tremendous book, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. But I, I, uh, I'm not saying I agree with their, all their points, but basically in the main, I agree with their critical evaluation of the New Testament. So who's the book for? That's my, I guess maybe that's my final question. Who should read your book? It's dedicated initially to all of the people that I personally influenced to believe in the gospel. Mm -hmm. But I, and I was effective. I did get a lot of conversions. Uh, uh, the church, I, the last church I pastored grew. I mean, we, we got them down the aisle and baptized people and it, it really grew. But my uh, book is for, it, it, is, it is to help people think critically toward the, toward the Bible. It helps you to, it, it tries to remove the fear that, you know, this is the word of God. You can't question it, which is what I was always told. Mm -hmm. Now you can study it. You can analyze it, but you must also do so. You must also always do so with the conclusion that this is, there's, there's no mistake here, no error here. This is the, you're just trying to find more truth. Mm -hmm. Actually, when you study it out, you find there's error. You find yeah. that you find that there is things that are not true. You find that there are prophecies that didn't that were not fulfilled. I deal with a lot of these things, pro, so-called prophecies in the Old Testament that were supposedly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which you'll find by the New Testament writers, they are heavily glossing these Old Testament passages to mm -hmm. make them appear to to say. And sometimes they just put words in the mouths of people. Paul in Romans 10, you know, that very famous passage where he says, if you will believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you shall confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right. Yeah, and pretty simple. Well, he, he grabs a passage from Isaiah 28, which talks about believing in him shall not be ashamed. And then another passage from Deuteronomy 30, where God is talking to uh, supposedly through Moses to all of the nation of Israel and says, you need to get a new heart. He's talking to a group of people. You need to turn away from idols. You need to start doing the commandments of the Lord. That was the new heart he was talking about. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He says, heart, you believe with your heart. So he takes Isaiah and Deuteronomy. He splices them together. And then he says, 
the belief is from the heart and it's belief in Jesus and the righteousness of the law that those passages were about, they have nothing to do with the righteousness of the law. They have to do with the righteousness of faith. So he completely glosses over the original meaning of everything and injects his meaning and uses the Old Testament to his his own purposes. Mm. Remember, Gary, remember, though, we we can't duplicate the same hermeneutic that the, that the New Testament writers did. So, you know, that that's his escape plan. Well, yeah. <laughs> they could do it. It was okay for Paul and everybody else. Well, as yeah, and the evangelicals non-charismatic, but you remember the charismatics come along, and they say, well, you know, when the charismatic movement started up in the '60s, and of course, neo-Pentecostalism goes way back. About it's only probably about 120 years old, realistically. Pentecostalism, speaking in tongues, baptism, yeah, turn of the century, really, yeah, all that. When that came about, it pretty much gave Christians license to expand and come up with new revelations any way they wanted. And that, a lot of times, included interpretations of the Bible. They had their own mm-hmm. private interpretation. And it's, they, I've heard him preach and say things like, you know what God means by that? He means this, or he means that. And uh, when mm-hmm. it didn't have that meaning at all. But the Spirit told me it means that. Or yeah. God led me to see this in the Bible. See, yeah. That isn't any different than the subjective claims of Paul, really. These yeah, that was just checking balance. Revelation. Yeah. These extra biblical revelation. Now, you and I, as evangelicals in our training, we didn't we didn't talk about extra biblical revelations, but there fit plenty of people who have <laughs> yeah. over the years. You know, so they're they're expounding on it. They're they're uh adding to it in all of this. Today, of course, in most evangelical churches, half a sermon's about politics, if not the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Is about oh. what's going on in, in the news. They've gotten away from the Bible. I've actually, I, I'm, I'm sad to see it. Even that's ironic, isn't it? I, I really am sad to see it. You walk in a Christian bookstore back in the '70s, there would be rows and rows of commentary. There'd be the Pullman mm-hmm. commentary, uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. You see all these commentaries by Ironside and Barnhouse and all these. You don't see that, and you see. Fairy tale books, you said yeah, self-help mysteries, yeah, and and uh, Christian fiction, behind series, yeah, end and time I, stuff. I don't think there's a there's a healthy interest in studying the Bible anymore about among evangelicals. I think it all has to do with really what's happening now, day to day living, or prophecy, or things like that. Yeah. As far as getting the meat out of Scripture and really expounding on it, I don't see that being done. It's not a thing. Not even in the pulpit. I mean, the pulpit is really sadly lacking in biblical material. Yeah. How ironic really you should is. say that. So people need it's, to find your book. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> I, I, every now and then I'll turn on one of these Sunday morning preachers and I'll listen to him. And I'll turn to my wife and say, that is the most shallow yeah. sermon I've ever heard. There's, there's nothing biblical about it. There's no proposition. There's no... Uh, it, it, they pick up the Bible and then they just wave it around and talk yeah. about it. Just a springboard. Don't expound it. You don't have expository preaching anymore. And yeah. truthfully, I kind of miss it. I miss yeah. it because it allows me to at least take the Bible and show now, wait a minute, you're saying this about it. Let's look at it more carefully. But if they're not interested in the Bible to begin with, how can you possibly convince them that th- there's errors in it? Yeah, they're not even interested. Well, so what? It's kind of like it doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters is politics, who you vote for. Yeah. Well, but if you're conservative or you're a liberal. You yeah. Know, I was going to say, if you're interested, I'll, I'll introduce you to my good friend David Johnson because 
He does a show called Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. And what we do about once a month, I get together with him for his show and we listen to a sermon and we break it down and we talk about all the premises and what goes on hermeneutically. So I think you might really be interested in being on that panel. So be very, I'll, I'll get you. I just will be catching that. Yep. Oh yeah. Send me the link. Send I me, will. Send me that link. I'll, I'll message you to David and uh, we'll see if we can get together. Now, speaking of social media, how can people find you if they want to connect with you? What's the best way to reach you? Okay. Well, I'm on Facebook. Uh, just look up Gary Hudson Tallahassee uh, on Facebook. You'll see a one of my guitar builds there as my avatar. It's a Stratocaster that's that's got like, it looks like there's a big cutout in it. Mm-hmm. It's actually my Astrocaster creation. I built 23 different Stratocaster models. So you'll see that and you'll see a bunch of guitars. If you see a bunch of guitars, Gary Hudson Tallahassee, it's me. You got the right guy. My website for my business, it, which is folkstoneguitars.com. Com. My email address is there. And another website I have is stainlessteelfrets.com. I own that domain because stainless steel frets are becoming the player's choice over nickel factory frets that are on most guitars. So I specialize in stainless steel refrets. Right. And I get next from all over the world to refret. Very cool. Email. Yeah, I was going to say, if people want to get a hold of you, they can do that. All right, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to get, get you in touch with David Johnson will be on hopefully maybe on one of these panels uh, breaking down one of these sermons i think you'll really enjoy that so thank you so much gary i've really enjoyed reading your book and chat with you as well let's say i've really enjoyed your podcast thank you for being there and thank you for having me